This is Andy Brewer with the Northwest AHEC Healthcare Insights Podcast. Today I have a guest that um, I'm honored to call my friend, colleague, and pharmacist extraordinaire, Julianne Kirk. She is a professor of the Department of Family and Community Medicine in the Diabetes and Endocrinology Center at Wake Forest Baptist Health. She's a certified diabetes educator, board certified pharma in pharmacotherapy, and a registered pharmacist. And I'm thrilled to have you here to talk about all kinds of stuff. Okay. Hello. So, what's going on in the uh, diabetes world of diabetes these days? Well, we know it's everywhere, and I think there'll never be a lack of patients. Um, I think the emphasis now, though, on many fronts, especially with the American Diabetes Association as well as other American Association of Diabetes Educators and the other national leaders, is to probably have more of an emphasis now on pre-diabetes. And as we see reform going forward, we'll probably get better reimbursement for getting patients in earlier in those stages of pre-diabetes before we flip over to full-blown diabetes to try, try to do and implement preventative health. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really an important twist to get the nutritional and diabetes education more preemptively and recognition and having the conversations earlier. So when you say pre-diabetes, that's, what is that, just elevated blood sugar? I mean, what, what are the indicators for that? Sure. That's going to be um, a state of glucose intolerance. We've got definitions for it. But basically, if your fasting blood sugar is over 100, and it's between that magic 100 and 125, where you're not full-blown diagnostic um, of type 2 diabetes or whatever category we um, have to um, use, since there are all diabetes is not created equally. Some is, you know, immunologically um, mm focused, especially in type 1 diabetes. But at any rate, the uh, pre-diabetes is the what I'll call the glucose intolerant range, where you have a lot of the risk factors that are going to eventually lead you down to the path of full-blown diabetes. Mm -hmm. And you know, I've heard the term metabolic syndrome. Is that uh, diabetes is one of those uh, afflictions, I guess you'd say, that in, this included in that general well, term? Well, Andy, that's definitely a, uh, when I'm, I'm teaching medical students, those come right neck and neck with each other when we're going through what are the risk factors for diabetes, what immediately, you know, gets pushed in when we're going through all of the differential is, you know, think about the metabolic syndrome. So when patients have elevated weight, sedentary lifestyles, high lipids, high blood pressure, all of those things live right neck and neck with type 2 diabetes. And so, yeah, they are highly correlated, but yet different syndromes, if we may. Mm -hmm. Well, I like the uh, emphasis on the pre-diabetes. It seems like to catch it before it starts kind of thing, and, and that seems to be the logical way to go about it. Now, um, aside from treating, uh, you know, immediately with, with various drugs, insulin, and, and I guess there's I don't know if there's others, but to get them on some sort of pharmacotherapy, you know, the the goal is to do what? To get them to change their lifestyle? Absolutely. And even though I'm a pharmacist and know a whole lot about medications, I always start any class with a group or one-on-one -on -one education um, just with the fact that this is going to be, you know, a, a long relationship because if you're doing behavior change, that is the hard part. And that is the element of what I think makes patients successful with, with any part of trying to treat a complex disease like diabetes that affects every part of their life is the behavior change. And that's not the easy part a lot of times. And that's why uh, many individuals and patients feel defeated in the whole process because it is hard to change behavior. When we ask patients to go and exercise, that, that we can say that, but if we don't really roll up our sleeves and meet patients where they are to be able to implement that successfully, you know, maybe it's a support person, maybe it's, um, you know, resources. It can be a variety of factors for success. And then behavior change 
when people are under a lot of stress or trying to change how they eat can be incredibly difficult. So I spend a lot of time trying to honest have honest conversations, again, figure out a specific, you know, individual situation and meet up my practices to try to help them with management that is best suited for their situation. And it's very individual there. However, when we teach in groups, it's really important. Some of that um, interaction that can occur, and if I'm being a great facilitator, I really actually don't have to talk very much because sometimes in that situation, patients actually listen to each other better than they do me as the healthcare provider because it's real and they know coming from somebody else experiencing the same difficulties that um, this is not an easy journey and that they can identify with each other's struggles. So I find both mechanisms for teaching um, can be very beneficial depending on the individual. Mm-hmm. Well, it, it's got to be complex. I mean, because the, the lifestyle that led to them getting to this point is just a myriad of factors. Like you mentioned, it could be stress. It could be, you know, just poor diet, sedentary lifestyle. And those are all caused by all kinds of factors. I mean, I talked with Dr. Skelton about, you know, childhood obesity and how complex that problem is. But uh, this is, you know, getting to it when it, you know, after all that has already, you know, has, has had an effect on the individual. And now you're trying to treat them not just with with medications, but with motivational interviewing, let's say, and, and, and those techniques. And how much of that is part of your um, teaching that you do now and when you go into the students? I mean, how much of the emphasis is on, uh, you know, almost counseling versus, versus pharmacotherapy? Well, I, I think a large component, and I probably have spent more of my 33-year career trying to figure out you know, why do you pay, some patients get it and they're, they're really motivated to make changes and it can't just always be, oh, they've got type A personality. That's really not the answer. So what is it characteristically that can help us better figure out mechanisms and modes of, of therapy to move people and motivate them? So with motivational interviewing, went through a lot of training on that aspect, as well as shared decision-making, which is another model, along with lots of other different techniques to try to find, again, and I'll use the phrase one more time, meeting the patient where they are. And I think it, it, it requires a combination of the different techniques that I try to feel out when I meet with a patient to see, you know, what, what they're most likely to be able to um, gravitate towards. For some individuals, it's having a support person with them because they feel so overwhelmed, for example, with cooking that they're like, well, you talk to me a lot about food here, but I have no control over the food. I need my wife here. And so, that, you know, we make sure the next time they come in, that significant other spouse is there to to hear the same same information. And then as Dr. Skelton in the um, Pete's section is is working with families because it it does take um, you know more than than one person in this situation sometimes. However, for for many individuals, it's just about being able to economically afford certain things and um, making it a priority. So that's where I think the motivational interviewing has been been really effective. And then you know I mentioned shared decision making that I try to make sure it's not me being the person you do it this way. It's more like, well, what do you think would be able to be um, you know a good technique for you to be able to make sure you take your medicine on time? Can you put it next to your toothbrush? And again. Every patient, it's a little bit different, but you, you really try to make sure you, you're comprehensive and that you're, you're a good listener. Mm-hmm. And that um, that's key on all fronts because patients want to be heard. And in this dynamic, chronic disease of diabetes, um, if they're not heard, they're, they're less likely probably to 
be successful with any management that you put forth because it's more than just prescribing a pill. Mm-hmm. So you described a lot of um, the, the, the uh, curriculum, I guess, of health coaching too. And so we're trying to head that uh, or extend the role of the medical provider to into the community more with health coaching and, and things like that. So being a good listener and, and, and latching on to the reasons people want or might want to change um, their lifestyle behavior to, to cheap, make healthier choices or to find the support network. And this, the word support brought uh, the opioid crisis up in my, in my mind, because I know you're heavily involved with opioid, uh, at least uh, tapering off of opioids for your patients and things like that. But um, I think there's a lot of those same complex issues with those patients, too, in that they don't have the support network. And for some reason, they got uh, either accidentally just uh, physiologically addicted to it or purposefully because they were blocking out something else in their lives that they didn't, that was missing. Um, so I think that, you know, could you talk about the types of support, the similarities, I guess, between support for, you know, the patients who need uh, better nutritional habits to control diabetes versus, or, you know, in comparison to the uh, opioid patients who, for whatever reason, are having trouble with that. Yeah, and it's it's a really... Um area that I will admit in my career that I really never thought I would be in the space of um, addiction with um, opioid use disorder. After some time, I had some colleagues um, ask me over and over again to pursue some different opportunities, and we had some some grants in our Department of Family and Community Medicine where we were um, doing a, a big intervention to incorporate more behavioral health therapists within our family medicine clinic so that patients would have a process of what we call warm handoff to be able to get the therapies they needed in a situation in a clinic, an outpatient clinic, where they didn't have to be stigmatized trying to get help at the methadone clinic or at the mood treatment center, you know, depending on what, what we were dealing with. And so we wanted to be able to have all of those services under one roof. And so we've implemented that integrated uh, care model in family medicine um, here at Wake Forest, and that's been a real um I think plus for the 50,000 patient visits we see a year there to be able to provide another level of care right there on site. In that, to get back to your question about the um, addiction and services that uh, people are dealing with that in our opioid crisis is the fact that we were able to um, you know, do some, some different um, maneuvers to get in, secure funding for a large grant for a teaching module that eventually you were involved with us in uh, getting that platform off the ground for resident teaching, medical student teaching, uh, physician assistant, and other um, learners out there in our medical system because we felt like it was really important to teach the processes to those providers that were going to be out there providing and offering care. But in the same token, it turned into now we'll be starting a medication-assisted therapy clinic actually next week in family medicine, which will be better known as a Suboxone clinic. Um, methadone would fall under that as well. And so yet another layer of being able to address patients with um, addiction disorders it's just like having hypertension. It's a chronic disease. And it, and this, again, I'll use the word stigma around being um, addicted to an opioid has really, you know, gotten a, a bad rap with um, how we treat the process because you're, you're bad, you're addicted, you're um, a felon. And that's the, all those don't go together. Sometimes they go together and People have, have found themselves where their brains gotten hijacked on these medicines. And so hopefully we will make a small 
dent into the process of what's going on here in our local community with opioid addiction and provide more services and avenues for patients to get the help they need. And so I think with that, I'm a big advocate about the counseling that goes along with it. There's lots of um, information out there and studies showing that suboxone, which is an opioid uh, compound that's um, combined with a another drug called naloxone that can help with um, as a deterrent so that patients don't overdose but can occupy the receptor in their body, causing um, them to be um, opioid addicted with um, how the opioid works in the body. When we use Suboxone, which is a combination therapy, with counseling, I think we can have some of the best success rates in helping patients with opioid addiction. So I hope that answers your question. That was a long way to go around about it. Right. I think I was thinking more in terms of the similarities in mindset. I mean, they're all hypertension, diabetes, and opioids are all behaviors that aren't sustainable. You know, diabetes and hypertension may have occurred from longer term unsustainable behaviors and opioids probably more acutely, but it's still like occupying hijacking the brain as food hijacks the brain as smoking or salt hijacks the brain in the way that I'm addicted to food or I'm addicted to smoking or I'm addicted to opioids it's still like I guess where I was trying to get back to was the whole counseling part I mean a lot of the the, if you take away the medications for a minute a lot of the approaches and take away the stigma a lot of the approaches are like, you know, still having to motivate the patient to want to make the change to be successful. I I agree with that. I also think, though, it's about coping mechanisms because we could look up studies um, in in any of these disease states and we can argue genetics and you were going to get it anyways, but we won't go there. So if we just step back for a second and say, okay, you know, I'm going to get the patient to a situation where I'm going to have it where they can get some techniques to be able to cope. That's a really good way to approach it. When, when I say that to patients, they look at me with a little softer eye and understanding that says, okay, I, I would like to be able to cope better. I would like to be able to know when I get these feelings, you know, to clarify what I am feeling and how I'm, how, how am I going to go about dealing with, um, my, my, dependence or my strong desire to be able to, you know, want to go and purchase street drugs versus know that I I really don't want to do that. And um, why am I, why am I having those feelings and how can I seek help and have the resources available to aid me the best in coping with difficult situations when Mm -hmm. it's overwhelming me. Yeah. I mean, as you were talking, I I was thinking about my friend Tom Reed, who does this um, uh, corporate communication coaching and one of his, uh, his his tools called task and the A in task stands for assume good intentions. And the way he breaks it down is like separate the behavior from the intention. So maybe the food as coping mechanism or the opioid as coping mechanism or the smoking as coping mechanism. The intention is I want to feel better. I want to cope with some stress. It's just the behavior is the part that needs to be replaced with something healthier. So I uh, agree totally. And there's many more experts in the field than me. And I, and I try to make sure I stay within my scope of practice as a pharmacist. But I will tell you that um, I think we're, we're hitting on the, the essence of what, why there are failures. And we need I, – I, I really don't want to do any medication-assisted therapy, or we call it the, our MAT clinic with Suboxone, without the um, – therapy that needs to go along with it. Mm -hmm. And um, there's some controversy around that because we know we save lives with the medication alone, but having both and having the patient be available to to get the counseling. So it's kind of like the same thing with diabetes. I, I can just, you know, have them get the pill or the insulin, but without all the diabetes education with the behavioral management that I I know goes with working with this this disease state um, for for my my whole career makes me think that, wow, what's what's the difference? And there really isn't any except our approaches need Mm -hmm. to coalesce and 
be, become full circle for offering comprehensive care to everybody, mm-hmm. not just those who have insurance. We'll get into some alternatives, um, for, especially for the, the pain management in a, in a bit. Um, but I wanted to ask, you know, you've traveled around the, the world to different places. Is, is America unique in its culture that we want a pill to fix us? Like we want a quick fix. We want to go to the doctor. We want to walk out with some solution. And, and, and the, the, the things that you deal with don't have easy solutions. And it, do you find patients uh, are disappointed when you can't give them that panacea when they walk out of your office? I think to some extent, and it, it's, it certainly is. Um, I think some of this has, again, been probably overflated because um, in, inflated in the fact that even my experiences abroad and other places, they're, they're still using medicines. They just get them a lot cheaper than we do here in the U.S. And I, I believe that it is a combination and it's all about moderation and being able to use um, multiple therapies because it is um, multifactorial. And so uh, there, there is that um, one and done, give me, give me the prescription and I don't, I don't need to, um, do, do any of the counseling. I don't have a psychological problem and, and, you know, however patients or individuals want to approach it. So, yeah, I think that's a tough question. And, um, I think the, the cost of a lot of our very effective medicines keep it out of the reach of, of people who really need it. And so that, that disheartens me a bit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So back to um, the alternatives. I knew, I mean, I really love seeing practitioners who exemplify the lifestyle, the healthy lifestyle, sustainable lifestyle. And I see you in yoga class and I see you at body pump and stuff like that. So, um, you know, how much, how important do you think that is when patients come in to uh, a practitioner and they see that they're actually living the lifestyle or at least trying to uh, model sustainable behaviors um, that they are prescribing, let's say, to to their patients. And yeah, you know, I can I think that can be a double edge because I work really hard to to try to keep fit, and it's not easy for me. And I had problems with diabetes with both of my kids, and patients will say, "That's there's no way you you know you you don't you don't have any problems. You don't know, really know how I feel, or you know." that I, I can't feel the empathy that that needs to take place. And so, you know, in the, in the same token, when a provider comes in and, and isn't exemplifying um, some of the characteristics of um, what they're, you know, with, with weight, for example, or um, what, what they're asking their own patient to do, I think that's, that's very important. And so if, if in fact... I, I can get patients to have a real conversation with me and unravel more a, about how they're actually going to implement the plan. So whenever we meet and we try to, um, you know, do our group classes over at the Diabetes Care Center, we make it very focused at the end of the session that they pick one simple goal. And the goal can't be, I want to lose 30 pounds. Mm. That that could be a long-term goal, but the goal is going to be something very simplistic like, I'm going to stop drinking sweet tea. And this is, these are the steps I'm going to take to ensure that I'm successful with that. And I'm going to start by drinking half sweet, half unsweet, mixing them. And then I'm going to taper that over two weeks until I'm down to a very small amount of sweet tea in the cup. And I think, Mm-hmm. Okay, I try to have them come up with it on their own, and the same thing if if they're if they're stressed out, how are you going to relax? Tell us the mechanism mm-hmm. and how you're going to be successful with that, and we have them write down what their goal is. And so w- when we do that, I think we we've got some accountability, and we come back and meet and see how successful individuals were because we do the group medical visits over in family medicine too with the same group of patients. And there is in fact a little bit of accountability there and the groups all look at each other like, okay, it's okay that you weren't able to accomplish it. How are you going to go back forth and, you know, um, make this happen for yourself? So there's a lot of different techniques and it's not easy, but I do think the image that a provider projects but also 
giving patients tools to be able to try to be successful is, is going to be equally important in that process. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I, you know, just talking to a pharmacist and we're talking more about motivation and goal setting and all that. I mean, you know, at the end of the day, it seems to me like the number one goal is I don't want to die like really soon, you know, and then maybe secondary. I want to add life to my years that I have. And then maybe third is like, well, why do I want to do that? Well, I want to play with my grandchildren or I want to, you know, do this or that. So you have, you know, to latch onto those bigger plant the flag in the future kind of things. And then, you know, have them set these little goals. I think that, you know, like I'm going to smoke one less cigarette this week than last and I'm going to, you know, or drink one less soda and that, those kind of things, goals that they can actually accomplish. And I think that, wow, I mean, that's, it's got to test your patience too. Oh yeah. Yeah. I feel like a little bit of a broken record, but you know, I, I always say to everyone, the medicine is only going to work as good as you're doing these these other parts that, you know, and I put up a graph and say, okay, what does everybody think diabetes really is? And I'll get lots of different shout outs. And then, you know, I said, well, I need to tell you, it's about all, all of these aspects. And we're going to try to see how we can make all of this work together so that you're successful. So medicine is a key component. And thank goodness we have insulin and different pills because, Without it, people would have died with this disease many years ago, and it's only been since the the 20s that we even had insulin. So um, I don't take for granted some of the very important pharmacologic uh, interventions that we have, but those interventions only work really good when we're doing all the other behavior change and um, ideal um, avenues for patients to be successful. So, you know, in family medicine, Dr. Rich Lord and I did this study and we sent out these surveys to all of our diabetes patients to see, you know, what were the characteristics that predicted patients being successful with their average blood sugar lab and their blood pressure and all the things we were looking at objectively. And and we went through and we looked at their um, level of education and if they had a support system and if they'd been to diabetes education and their zip code and if they had health insurance. And at the, at the end of this big survey that we gave them a little bit of incentive to fill out like a $20 gift card. Um, that, that got a lot more surveys back, but <laughs> we ended up getting, you know, close to like 700 surveys back of our, um, 1500 patients. So almost half, we found that if, if the patient was a woman and if she had Medicare and if she were, um, white, she, she did better. Mm-hmm. And so, um, I don't just emphasize, those patients to be successful with, but in our practice there, where our patients are um, about half black, half white, we have um, a small portion of Hispanics um, that we um, need to think about access to care and and their ability to pay. So it sounds like when patients do get Medicare, they get um, feel like they have better access to get to their regular appointments and preventative appointments. Hmm. Interesting. Um, So back to pain, if we had a magic like tests that you could like apply to someone's forehead and measure their actual level of pain from one to 10. And it, what do you think the threshold would need to be before you would prescribe any uh, opioid based painkillers? So I've been studying this a long time and I'm a person who wretches if you give me an opioid. So I might be a little biased on that, but I, f- I first say that after reading a lot of books and studying this and doing a lot of lectures um, around how to treat pain and trying to really look objectively at both sides that I think we live in an American society that we've we've had a process that we shouldn't be uncomfortable. And in fact, this is a motto I've tried to do with my kids that it's okay to be uncomfortable. It's okay to experience a little bit of pain. I don't want you, you know, so uncomfortable that you're up all night and get, didn't get any sleep and I'm just like not listening to you at all. But I think we live in a society that we've, we've got this expectation that I should be pain free and no pain. And unfortunately, once we all heard about pain as the vital sign and that, you know, we, we, 
we created, we all have heard about some of the history that goes along with how opioids really flooded our um, communities. It's just, we've got to go back and prepare the patient that, hey, you know, you're going to feel a little bit uncomfortable. And at the point, you know, oh, we got to keep the pain under control. And I think the only time in my personal view that that is so, so, so up to the most important aspect is in cancer pain. Mm-hmm. And, and cancer pain is not what we're talking about mm-hmm. here. And that, you know, besides cancer pain, I feel like it's okay to be uncomfortable a little bit. And actually, the, the research and literature shows, and there's, you know, study after study to indicate that alternating good old acetaminophen or Tylenol with ibuprofen, and you can brand that Advil or whatever different NSAID potpourri um, that you would like, and when you alternate those, you actually get better pain control. And then when we're escalating doses of opioids, there's actually a hyperanalgesic effect that you get that you actually get less pain control. So with all of that, to answer your question, when would I advocate a physician writing for a opioid um, would be never, but I know that that's not practical because if you've ever experienced a hemorrhoid, a kidney stone, or root canal, those rank up with some of the most painful things right along with childbirth. So um, I will try to put some humor on this and say I'm not a narcissist to that point, but I think you need to prepare the patient that it would be short-term, that um, they, they can infuse some of the other therapies, um, albeit if they don't have any liver or kidney disease that we're worried about, and that um, it may be okay to experience a little bit of pain and that um, we don't um, want to set the patient up for failure if they're trying to heal from a very serious surgery, but in the same token, do a better job of preparing the patient of what they're going to experience and what the, the treatment course is, because a lot of people go go in, you know, and into the process and they get whatever amount of pain pills and they they do exactly what they're they're told and they get it filled and and they take it around the clock and may, maybe that was just enough to tip them over the edge and as we said earlier hijack the brain mm-hmm. well you said discomfort and just you know i like to to think that we have or i i do think that we have decreased our threshold for what we think is comfort and discomfort and that's not a good thing i think in in a lot of cultures i've read and heard about uh you know pain is like a growth thing pain is part of the healing pain is is a symptom of some other cause that you need to heal and to 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 repair and that kind of thing and then there's just some expectation that yeah you're going to feel pain for a little while. And then when you stop feeling pain, you're going to remember that pain. And that's going to probably help you avoid feeling that again. So we, mm-hmm. we, we've gotten to the point where, we, you know, it seems to me that a lot of our society is just like, oh, we can't be uncomfortable. And so if any amount of pain, oh, give me the strongest thing you have. And, I, you know, I have an experience with being in very bad pain back, you know, a few years ago when I was in the hospital. And. It, it, you know, I, I wanted the, the king of the mountain of all painkillers. And when I finally got it, I was like, finally, you know, I, I understand. And it's, you know, I'm so glad we have those things, but we should only use them when we really, 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 really need them. And I think people just for a little discomfort, they're like, oh, I need some Percocet, you yeah. know, or, or whatever it is. And so, uh, and, and you mentioned your kids when you said discomfort and I'm, I've experienced that firsthand with, with mine is that any little discomfort they, they repel from. And it's like, how are you going to ever grow if you're never uncomfortable? I mean, even growing itself has pains physically, right? you know, and, and I always use the uh, anecdote that uh, my oldest, I took her to body pump class with me and she stopped doing an exercise halfway through. And I asked her after I said, you know, why did you stop doing that? And she goes, well, I was uncomfortable. 
And like, there's 60 people in this room. None of them are here to be comfortable. They're here to make themselves uncomfortable so that they grow from it. You know, so you challenge yourself. And I I just, you know, we touched on it, me and Nigel, this morning uh, about that and about the inability to or or the the lack of desire to be uncomfortable and how we've created safe spaces and places where, oh, you know, we don't don't want to discuss things that we know are uncomfortable. We're just going to ignore them like they're not here because we don't want to offend anybody, (laughs) you know. And it's the same with with pain, I think, actual physical pain. But, of course, I don't want patients not being able to, you know, do their job right. because you know now now they feel like they're going to injure themselves or there, there's there's always certain circumstances that I actually think opioids are you know when used safely in low doses um, are, are going to be part of people's regimens mm-hmm. potentially maintenance for long term those are those are few and far in between. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I like to think of them as tools i mean what do you grab when you got to fix something you grab the tools to fix it and then you put it back you know you don't carry the tool around with you all the time you just use it when you need it and that's it so i mean it's a good it, analogy you yeah. know i mean and then there's some other tools i mean sticking on the the pain topic um you, you know i i helped you create some learning modules and we had what do we have Me- uh, meditation we had acupuncture we had yoga omt well, omt and it, what what other things topical therapies non opioid medicines mm-hmm. um i was water skiing yesterday probably shouldn't been up there that long and i <laughs> hit my neck and i got up this morning and said could you use an opioid right now or not <laughs> and i use some topical and it feels a lot better and so i think we discount some of the different therapies that that can be very effective um when when um we bypass the gut sometimes because we we get right to the point i mean if i had you know Icy hot. I would have used that, and it mm-hmm. would have helped um, with, with some of the tension. So, um, again, w- we are trying to look at some of those other tools. You mm-hmm. know, the acupuncture I used in my neck about three weeks ago, um, and it it didn't feel real good going in, but wow, it worked. Mm-hmm. And so, I do think we have to look beyond the the traditional. Uh, prescription medicine you know the the chinese medicine with the acupuncture has been around a long time and we have that available at our family medicine clinic dr kelly beck does it and it um it's a good option to think about Mm -hmm. but yeah we look we did those modules for teaching because we wanted to make sure that the providers and the learners knew that we're not discounting that people don't have real pain neuropathy is one of the probably toughest things in the diabetes world to treat because when people describe neuropathic pain, there's it's like no other. And unfortunately, for many individuals, they've um, had a lifelong process of not controlling their blood sugar that we can't really repair the, the nerves that have been damaged through the diabetes. So that's a really tricky pain syndrome to deal with. And um, usually one of the things that actually brings patients in and motivates them to finally get the diabetes under control. But unfortunately, um, as I say, the horse is usually out of the barn by then. Mm -hmm. So we do need to think about some, some other creative therapies and um, get people again early in the process before they have full blown, very difficult controlled disease, because that tends to be, um, very um, challenging to try to deal with for patients and providers and discouraging on a lot of different um, sites to be able to help people and the patient feel like they, they're helping themselves and not defeated. How, how seriously is the medical community looking at um, the hemp and CBD uh uh, popularity. I mean, now uh, you can't drive down the street without seeing, you know, the guy dressed in, you know, a, a green wig and a, a doctor's white coat with the sign saying hemp, you know, hemp healer, or CBD, and, and, you know, lowers blood pressure, lowers A1C, reduces pain, reduces anxiety. I mean, it's like the cure-all. Are, are we looking at that it's the seriously? the power of youth, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> I think 
the reality is, and I'll have a patient a week come in and say, hey, I wanted to let you know. I wanted to see what you thought. I've been doing CBD oil and I'm doing this. Well, what do you think? And I'm, I'm careful about my opinion because I think that really isn't in my um, total um, scope of practice to be able to totally give a, a thumbs up or thumbs down. I, I note it and I say, look, if you think it's helping you and you can afford it, you know, try to um, make sure, especially when you're traveling, we know there's issues with carrying it mm-hmm. that we've seen on TV to be really careful in that situation. And that um, for, for many individuals, though, it's, it's really been a game changer for them. And I think it's something we're going to have to seriously consider um, in some communities, it's it's. You know, I was up in Asheville at a meeting, and there were there were a lot of shops there. I walked into, and it's the, the science behind it is more than just whimsical. Mm-hmm. And there's um, a fair amount of data and um, information that's um, forthcoming. I think all products are not created equally, mm-hmm. and that we need to make sure of, of what pa- patients think thinking they can um, ingest and put topically and. Um, the spectrum there can be wide. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I think we're going to see some more regulation in that area. I mean, I, I, full disclosure, I own some shares of different companies who are into that space and, and they've, you know, been going, doing pretty well. So, uh, you know, and they're, they're serious companies with serious labs and serious supply chains and serious manufacturing and, 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 you know, know, all the things that a, you know, a regular pharmaceutical company for any other uh, drug would, would be going through. And and I just, I just see that as a, if it is the panacea that, that a lot of people say it is, um, and, and a lot of anecdotal evidence, uh, certainly, you know, people saying, wow, like it's a game changer. And, And it seems like that needs to, be considered for legit, you know, purposes in, in the modern, uh, conventional medicine cabinet, I guess. Yeah. I I think as a pharmacist, I still wish that I had a little more information about side effects and drug interactions, because whenever I'm looking at a drug regimen, that is, um, paramount for me to be able to critically analyze a drug list over the counter as well to make sure I keep the patient safe and head off a foreseen potential side effect or drug interaction. Those don't always get counted or seen, but I can't tell you how much I know I've made a difference in that um, spectrum to be able to make sure that I I prevent stuff. And um, I'll continue to do that, even though that's a little harder to document the um, value of that. It's there. And that's why um, that's my job. Mm Mm-hmm. Now, back to diabetes, uh, is is that, I mean, I, I don't know the statistics around it, around the world, but is that a type 2, I guess, is what I'm referring to. Is is that a disease of affluence? I mean, are, are, do we see the same rates of diabetes in countries, poorer countries? Absolutely. That, it is not a disease of affluence. If we think about a, lo- a large portion of the world living on rice. If you're genetically predisposed and your your diet is composed of rice, because I deal with a lot of my um, Asian community and being half Asian, knowing that the white rice is is not the friend when you're trying to look at glycemic index and um, get your fasting blood sugar to normal, and so um, or postprandial blood sugar after you eat. So no, I, I don't agree with that at all. And in fact, we know that, that the fast food has been somewhat of the culprit. And there's been studies and geographical um, associations with when once people stopped growing their own food and and eating more of the fast food and the high fatty acids and the high fructose corn syrup, there's definitely a correlation with that. So no, I think it it is an equal opportunity employer. Okay, yeah, that was one of the myths I wanted to to address uh, was because I've always I've, or I've heard, I guess that, you know, we, you know, places where the soda comes in and the hydrogenated oils and all, then all the comorbidities or the metabolic syndrome. There's some truth to that as well. But I think again, it, it can hit any of us that um, at any age in mm-hmm. my clinic now used to be when I started here, um, 
you know, in the er, in 92, I started here and my clinic was mostly older individuals who aged into diabetes. And now my average age is probably in the forties. Okay. Okay. Now is, are there any, uh, things you can do to, uh, optimal optimize, even if you're a healthy person and you, go into all you can eat spaghetti night <laughs> and you <laughs> and, and if i see you there i won't say anything but you will know by the look on my face that <laughs> be careful with that portion well i guess what uh, are there any techniques that one can use to to offset that like physical techniques and um that you know of um, so how do you mean by physical Well, techniques? like any kind of exercises you could do. Like, Okay, so what I'm getting at, I have a friend who was traveling across the country this summer. And they all, they were posting videos of their meal and stuff. And, and they were kind of fitness and nutrition kind of guys. And then after they would eat, before they got in the car, they would each do 50 squats. Like no weights, but just squats. And, and they're... Uh, what they were, why they were doing it was they said it helps with insulin production to offset the meal they just put in. So they're not sitting sedentary for the next five, six hours, but they, you know, that somehow sparked the processes to, to deal with that more efficiently. Is there any truth to that? You know, I haven't looked at any of the specific research on that. Cause I guess there was the old school that, oh, you don't want to do a lot of exercise before, after you eat, because you got to let the digestion process. <laughs> yeah, don't swim. You're going, you're going to drown. <laughs> yeah, don't do that. But I, I believe there's probably some, some truth to that because at the end of the day, when you stimulate the muscle, you store glucose better. And I tell patients that activity as much as you can in any form. It doesn't have to be doing a hundred squats or running three miles, but getting up, if you've been sitting more than an hour, that's, that's bad. And that any stimulation of that muscle and we don't want them to atrophy as well is, is critical and equal or better to the impact that I can get from a medicine. And so when they hear that and I, and I, quote some realistic studies with the diabetes prevention program and and I try to briefly you know tell them what the outcome was that actually activity won out over medicine Mm -hmm. that they're like oh really and that it's real and they can look up the study that they know that they need to be moving and I try to say movement activity and not always the word exercise because they they know some people say well golly I can get up more and I can use the stretch band you gave me and I guess I just got to do it right mm-hmm. and I'm like yeah you got to do it and they're like well I got soup cans I can move those around and you know I really try to pinpoint them on how they're going to do it I think this is where a support person comes in because I think when they have more accountability so to answer your question do I think activity um, after eating a big meal, don't try to eat too big of a meal, is one one of the, that's correct, um, (laughs) to try to stay within a um, certain amount of food and spread it out and um, brush your teeth more because you're going to be grazing, um, I think has some merit to it as well as as much activity as you can, um, not to the point that you're throwing up your meal though. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, wouldn't want to do that. Okay. (laughs) Well, um... So, yeah, I mean, I appreciate you coming in today. And I think that these, you know, I, I see it as the three pronged, uh, metabolic, uh, disaster that you deal with, which is, you know, opioids, diabetes, and hypertension. So you're at the front lines of the American lifestyle <laughs> and the American afflictions. And, and I think you do a great job. And I've had a, uh, a guest on this morning who, who who was singing your praises. So we had firsthand account, well, and, thank and you. <laughs> I and I've had firsthand account with you as well. So we'll end uh, with a couple of last questions. What what most excites you? Well, I'm just grateful to to be doing this. I I love it, and I try to, as you know, impart to your kids, you know, find something you really like to do because if you don't, you're going to be miserable. But I'm I'm never miserable. I I love. <laughs> helping people because I think I do make the difference. I, it is true when I tell a patient to call me and, you know, I'm going to talk to them frequently. <laughs> it really does happen. So I have that that luxury to, to be able to fit time to, to do that. And that might make 
it a little different and I get to do some research and I get to teach too. So I get to do the three things I really like. And so for that, I'm grateful. And so this will all continue to um, excite me because, you know, I still do continuing education. I used to do a whole, whole lot more of that, but I got to reshape that. And I still think that's an important part of, you know, the professionals getting, you know, the right messages. So we still do a big diabetes conference every year that the Northwest AHEC helps me support. So I think we got to continue to get the messages out there um, and, you know, help our community. And it's my expectation um, that um, my kids, me, that, that we we have a stake in the community. And um, I think I'll be doing this for a little bit longer. I'm not going anywhere. What what advice would you give for, you know, young prospects, uh, young uh, health care interested students who think they might want to go into pharmacotherapy. I mean, the, the word therapy is pretty strong there, I guess, because it's more than just drugs. And what, what advice would you give them to if they want to go into this field? Um, most of them hopefully would have shadowed um, an ideal provider. I mean, I don't put it be you know, beyond me at all to return to the community pharmacy. Hopefully I'd be able to still run the computer successfully with all the <laughs> insurance cards. Hopefully I'd have a good technician working with me. I did that for five years before I went back to school and um, got the extra education I need to be in the position I'm in now. But I think that if you're aspiring to be in a role as an educator, as I look at myself, a health educator uh, with, you know, a flair for, understanding the the pharmacy end of it that um you really do need to be somewhat um invested in um helping people Mm -hmm. a lot and a people person that likes to be able to be patient and a good listener and um really genuinely care care about all of the aspects of you know trying to get people affordable medicine trying to be able to make make sure you meet that person where they are and, and help them with more aspects of their health care than just maybe the actual thing that they're in front of you for. And that could be a lot of different reasons because all of it um, interplays with each other. And so you, you got to be able to work with the team. Well, you mentioned you used to do a lot of the anti-coag updates for Northwest AHEC. Um, did we solve that puzzle? Is that still a thing or is there, we have a magic drug for yeah, that? Yeah, I, I think we've got better medicine now and that – I think a lot of people still use um, warfarin, and it should stay in in our armamentarium of drugs. And some patients do very well with that as a um, anticoagulant. Some people call it a blood thinner. But for others, the newer medicines um, that we call um, by by various names, Noax, Doax, they're um, um, novel oral anticoagulant drugs that are more specific, um, don't require the monitoring, and um, but they still require monitoring of the patient for bleeding and um, some of the other aspects we need to follow um, are very effective and um, should be um, considered based on the, the patient. But the days that we're having people come in masses to get their lab work done to see how thin their blood are are, are less than... 10 years ago, because I think we do have more directed focused therapy um, available to us now. Okay. Well, I know you got to go. So once again, thank you for coming All on. Right, we've thank been you trying, for having me, Andy. We've been trying to get you here for quite some time. Yes. And we finally did. All so, right. Thank you, Julie. Have a great day.